0: Hello, humans, and welcome to TMZ for people who need to touch grass. This is episode 29 of your Power Report, and I am Dan from the Internet. Missed you. Hope you're doing well. Back from my little uh, John Oliver break, as you called it. You ever notice how John Oliver and a lot of those like uh, comedians who do uh, political shows? <clears throat> not, not, not to imply I'm anything of the sort, uh, though we'll definitely get enough of comedians with political shows later on in this episode, but... Um, All those comedians with political episodes and shows and things like that, they always take those breaks, you know, in the summer because they acknowledge uh, something quietly, at least their production teams do, that is kind of the reason behind a lot of my ethos here. And as I'm getting into the intro of this episode, um, really jam-packed episode, by the way, I'm going to have a special guest, Jordan Yule, to kind of talk about the Democratic Party and the state of it um, after the Nina Turner race that we just uh, saw, unfortunately, after... um, A number of different things we're seeing over the Biden administration and continuations from the Trump administration, from this Democratic administration. Got a lot to hit on Republicans. Of course, I'm going to hit on some billionaires, because as I was gone, we had a little billionaire space space race going on, mind you. A little excited here. Uh, But I've also got a little bit of uh,
1: things to say about the grifters of TYT. And just some observations more broadly.
0: Oh, we'll be getting that to near the end of the episode, so uh, strap in. But the reason those comedians and those people I mentioned earlier do those sorts of breaks where they acknowledge that there isn't a lot of news going on. One reason is because that's called Silly Season. It's something that's in British English, and this is a real thing. It refers to a period in the summer where journalists have nothing to talk about, but they have deadlines and quotas to meet. And so the news is cluttered with nonsense to fill space and sell ads because, you know, people have to get paid. These operations still have to, you know, work. And, you know, oftentimes there is important news that gets out there from time to time. But a lot of the times it's just a regular summer droll. And for the past uh, four years, at least between 2015 and 2020, 2021, a little bit early 2021, during the Trump years, really what I'm alluding to, there was such a nonstop torrent of news and things going on that, um, I think we got accustomed to this constant news cycle and we forgot that uh, under many Republican presidents and under many Democratic presidents, this news cycle was just very much dull. There wasn't a lot to talk about, and so you had uh, conservatives who were allowed to fill the airways with culture war nonsense. It used to be called uh, political correctness, and maybe before that it was called uh, forced busing. Uh, but, you know, now it's free speech and uh, critical race theory and cancel culture. Nonsense. We were talking about Dr. Seuss earlier this year. Come on now. We have these nonsense stories and things that are taking up our discourse because there isn't really that much going on. And so, in acknowledgement of that, and in acknowledgement of the fact that I, Dan, I try to make content with a certain amount of quality, a certain uh, respect to the audience, that you come here uh, maybe not as plugged in as um, a more unhealthy person such as myself who pays a lot of attention to politics would be. But someone who is genuinely curious and intellectually curious, wants to come in here and learn some stuff, a lot of this stuff is nonsense. And so if I were to pull up on a show and put on, um, do these episodes uh, weekly and try to find whatever nonsense thing was going on here um, week to week, I would be exhausted, you would be exhausted, you would tune out, and people would start to miss the forest for the trees. We'd start to focus on these nonsense issues out of necessity and give them unnecessary amounts of oxygen just for the uh focus of doing the means of doing a show without having the necessary foundation in order to provide uh quality content throughout and so that's a lot of what i've been working on in the background trying to figure out with a philosophy of quality over quantity how can i do power report and participate in like the uh just simply like not participate in the news rat race while still providing a consistent um, amount of content that you know provides value and so by doing power report which will continue to be like a more uh often thing i'm doing semi-monthly if that's every two weeks hopefully we will continue to grow with that as um things do but there's also my dan from the internet project so i can do maximum context. i can go into these uh long as you remember my 20th video bad news and maybe you don't um for those who are new here this long diatribe where I can go into all these details about um, the news ecosystem and uh, the propaganda model and all of these theories and what's going on with um, the news and how we see it today. I'm glad to be able to do all that, but I want to be able to continue doing that in the proper way because of many of the reasons I'm going to describe and go through in this episode. There There are themes in this episode and that's how I kind of like to do it. So Long story short, I don't mean to make this all about me, although this is going to be a very much about me episode. I'm doing this generally solo other than the uh, guest interview coming up in a bit. But this is to say that for those who are somewhat new to the channel and what I'm doing here, I will say that... um, I usually do these projects called Danfin the Internet. They take a while to bake, but they provide the maximum amount of context, as I was describing earlier. And then I have Power Report, which is the simply mon- semi-monthly kind of project where I'm doing news, but providing context, doing world news and using an intersection, intersectional uh, analysis with uh, people of color, the working class, um, really putting in the perspective of power and doing all these sorts of things like that. Um, And also, while I've been scaling these things up, I'm doing some TikTok appearances lately for Good Morning Bad News. That's been really awesome. Uh, Lately, I've done videos on militarization of police, labor strikes, and I've got another one coming out soon on um, student debt relief and just the issue of student debt more broadly. So definitely check that out at Good Morning Bad News on TikTok and give me a follow at Dan from the Internet on TikTok as well. also, shout out to AudioFace while I'm talking about things I'm doing really fast before we get into the interview. Um, we're almost 200 episodes of the music podcast that I do. We're usually doing um, music reviews every single week, but oftentimes it gets into news and politics. Um, so definitely check that out at YouTube.com slash AudioFacePod or AudioFace.show for all of the links. It, all the social media will be there. And uh, some folks might also remember while I'm here doing some housekeeping, cl- yeah, housekeeping
1: things. Uh, I did a stream called TDIF and yeah that was a really cool thing i was i started doing that stream
0: late last year and basically it was called thank dan it's friday and the idea was i would do a friday stream um kind of recapping the news trying to again like do this in a good contextual way where i'm not like following the rat race of news but still providing good context to what really mattered and hammering on those kinds of stories and uh it was really working really well and so um it was a Twitch stream. I was doing it with this uh, company called SourceStream and I had one of their top viewed shows. I was really pulling in some really awesome guests that um, hopefully I'll get to bring back on the PowerPoint as well. Um, folks like Manny Fidel from Business Insider, Ken Klippenstein from The Intercept, um, a number of great heavy hitters and it was a really fun t- t- uh, thing. I worked with a great team, uh, really patient, professional, friendly individuals and uh, we sort of like tied things down a little bit earlier this year and part of that was just i had to shift some responsibilities on my personal side of things and i needed some time to transition to that but the other part of that was ultimately Sourcestream, stream based on their business model as they had it were unable to continue to sustain the entire network of shows they were doing including thank dan it's friday so um i tried to accommodate that the best i could but ultimately we weren't able to continue to sustain that stream and so that kind of coincided with me pairing back Power Report a little bit. And um, also it also presented me with a great opportunity to use this time to really focus on creating these really cool Dan for the Internet products I've got coming up later this year, two of them. Um, really excited to show you those things. Um, they're, as always, every single Dan for the Internet project will be better than the previous one, so um, expect some wild surprises with that. And... Hopefully I can bring back TDIF in some kind of format. Maybe it's like a power report weekly thing. Maybe it is like a something like that. But I think there was some use to having that kind of stream and having that kind of show and doing a more consistent quality content. I think um, now that I've built this sort of infrastructure and continue to build it, now I can um, have this out to some level of quality and do that. So I'm sorry for that intro. I really just wanted to give people some like transparency <laughs> as far as my own i'm going to be demanding a lot of transparency from a lot of individuals in this episode so i want to do some for myself power Report is not going anywhere i plan to do much much more of it um this is my child i really care about it and i'm going to take everything i've learned from um my previous work at a lot of different uh, media organizations including the young turks um and my knowledge with the podcast i've been working on like audio face and other things i've done and all that coming together to really just make the rest of this year and what I've got coming up in the future, some of the best stuff I've made and a really good foundation for the future. As I said, the future won't wait. So um, with that, what a great segue to the rest of what I'm doing. So coming up more of everything that you enjoy seeing and I enjoy doing for the long haul, ideally. Next up on the program, I wanted to assess where the Democrats currently stand as we approach the six month mark of the Biden presidency. I have a lot of high level bleak assessments on the Democratic Party, but I kind of wanted to bounce ideas off of someone well plugged into this activist space um, who has a really also a high level view, who's able to kind of help me pick my brain and make sense of kind of what I'm seeing from the Biden administration, because I was... Not necessarily expecting more in fact i've been pretty on record on this episode on on this show rather of being really abysmal about my expectations of the democratic party now they're shifting towards this more moderate centrist um thing in response to donald trump but i was thinking that the democrats were talking a really big game um in response to uh the election of joe biden narrowly beating donald trump in a lot of ways the uh, Georgia runoff, they are talking a really big game about making sure that Republicans didn't gain a stronghold after catching this breather right now, and I'm currently seeing a lot of disappointments. Anyways, thankfully through all of this, to navigate this really complicated situation in a smart way,
2: I was able to have a chance to chat with Jordan Newell, I'm a progressive activist out of DC, and I am the host of Deep Dive on TYT and the Insurgents Podcast with Rob Rousseau.
0: Note that this portion of the interview was recorded slightly before Joe Biden announced that he would be, um, what he's calling this the final pause in the collection of student loans that was started um, as a result of COVID-19 as part of like a large myriad of relief efforts actually under the Trump administration. Um, And that this final pause will be set to end on January 31st, 2022. So after that date, student loans will start to um, come due again for the bunch of people who are after that. Again, kind of as we talk in this thing, um, Joe Biden, largely, it's agreed upon, he has the power in the executive branch to cancel student loan debt, and the economic impact of that is largely agreed to be positive where this happened. But nevertheless, I just wanted to put that disclaimer. Here's my conversation with Jordan Ural on what I refer to as the malaise era of the Democratic Party that I think we're currently living in right now. So, Jordan, thank you very much for joining me on Power Report to kind of like bounce some of these ideas I've been having about the state of the Democratic Party right now and um, how things are going. Uh, But I guess I want to begin with my sort of like brief analysis of how the Biden years have gone so far. So like especially in comparison to the Trump years, there were pretty obvious policy and strategy differences between like centrist libs and the far left. It felt like there was, and, and even though that was like very clearly obvious, it felt like there was a greater ca- a capacity and ability to unite across coalitions and mobilize on a certain subset of issues that were especially important during the Trump administration. You had um, pretty immediately after Trump was inaugurated, you had mobilizations at airports uh, protesting the Muslim ban. You had a lot of focus on... Um, the crisis with migrant children at the southern border. Uh, near the end of the administration, there was a breakout of like Black Lives Matter protests, and you have people from like anarchists and socialists and communists with like centrist libs, all like you know coming at things from a different place, but it seemed like they were united and pushing for more radical action than it had actually seemed possible. And that's not to say or conflate the idea that the Trump administration was a good thing for the left, net pos like net negative for the people um it has affected. Um, and that will be felt for generations to come. But you could at least see that on the left, there was a lo- on the left of center broad speaking like democratic left, there was some capacity to build these strong coalitions and actually mobilize them to be able to build power outside of politics and their political system as well as inside of it so you could unite coalitionally. But now that Biden has been elected, everyone has gone off to brunch after brunch after brunch. Um, Open wet mouth kiss summer has been abruptly stopped because of evil Dr. Fauci. Um, Like those of us who point out Biden's agenda or his refusal to act on a number of issues are and or the fact that his refusal to act on a number of issues are leading to a de facto continuation of the number of like problems that you had with the Trump administration. Anyone who points these things out. We're now being called Republican sympathizers or right wingers or alt left or Bernie bros or all these things all over and over again. And so you have that pressure coming from like the center left who seems to have forgotten the past four years. And then you have this pressure from the far left who seems to like have completely turned into day to day online drama and um, discourse about. You know, I I love theory as much as the next guy, but at a certain point, like, you have to apply that theory and, like, do some action at some point, right? But you're getting through all these cyclical things of who's a paid shill, who isn't, who can we trust, who can we not, and so people are building all these grudges and grassroots efforts and all these things are now being demoralized, essentially, by these performance artists who build their brand off of not constructive criticism, but petty differences. There's an endless torrent of BS that is Overall, making it harder, it seems, for our part of the left to do and accomplish a lot of the things we want to. And so I know, Jordan, you have a reputation to uphold of being a glowing optimist. But to what extent do you agree with my sort of like analysis of (laughs) the first couple of months of the Biden administration? And um, to what extent do you even differ?
2: (laughs) Uh, That's great. Yeah, that's that's me, the glowing optimist. Uh, I... A couple takeaways. I mean, I, I agree with largely all of that. What is most frustrating in this transition between uh, from, from Trump to Biden is just the just mass wave of liberals or even progressive Dems just completely checking out. And you see that manifest in a few different ways. Um, you know, the, the smallest, least important, but easiest to measure... Uh, Metric is that they just aren't even paying attention. They, like you see, um, you know, engagement uh, on on liberal and progressive pages or, or or social accounts just completely plummeting. You're seeing ratings drop. You're seeing readership drop across the board in every medium, form, platform, whatever. A colossal drop off in democratic and progressive content consumption that's again the least important you are seeing uh on the organizational side where i kind of reside is uh smaller click-through rates smaller email open rates fewer donors uh smaller fundraising halls and then most recently in the and this is the most important in the special election in ohio's 11th with Nina Turner running against Chantel Brown and a slew of other centrist Democratic candidates, you saw a voter turnout rate of 16%. That is abysmal. And while Dems are celebrating that because it helped get their person elected, that could ultimately come back to bite them if that same trend happens in California. Because Gavin Newsom's up for recall. And sure, you don't want a Republican. Gavin Newsom isn't great. I don't like the guy. But you don't want a Republican to be governor, especially if, God forbid, something happens to Dianne Feinstein and the governor then has to pick uh, her appointment. And that is a Republican. That's bad. You already have a delicate balance in the Senate. Do you want a Republican senator from California? I sure don't. So what they need is higher voter participation, higher voter turnout on the left to beat back some of these uh, some of these recall challengers. Um, And while they're again, while they're celebrating that because it beat a progressive the the establishment is that's that that's dangerous. So this reflects just a, a one aspect of this larger, just mental shut off on the left, and unfortunately, that also manifests in different uh, forms of opposition and pushback to policies that were once huge, galvanizing issues during the Trump administration, specifically immigration. Many of the same policies, in fact, some exact same policies, even policies that are illegal when enacted under Trump, are still being uh, carried out and now defended by Biden. And it is just a deafening silence. You're seeing an expansion of migrant detention facilities on the border. The kids in cages thing is now much more nuanced, much more difficult, uh, much more complex when it was an issue that mobilized hundreds of thousands of people in June of 2018, around the country. That was a huge, huge moment. The Families Belong Together rally was colossal. It was nationwide, and now crickets. That's deeply disappointing because while I'm I'm not an optimist, one thing I really, really hoped was, as somebody who worked on that issue during the Obama years and just nobody cared, was, hey, now that people are aware of this, maybe we can finally rectify it. And I was foolish to even think so.
0: Yeah, that's pretty much all of us who had skin in the game to some extent during the Obama years and really thought that we were in the room for the same reasons and wanted the same amount of change and wanted to see it through have been fiercely and sharply shown like the error of our ways for possibly believing that ever since. And and unfortunately, it seems like the Biden administration, while there was a lot of talk and heavy rhetoric, I remember... Uh, Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer doing like the media circuit on a lot of different outlets even some of like the independent like online based outlets talking about the urgency of this situation and how dire it is that the Democrats need to start chalking up some wins they need to get some support back uh, from the Democratic from the uh, just overall voting populace because otherwise they're not going to be able to sustain this kind of when or like this kind of like success rate or lack of success rate for very very long, they're institutionally due to gerrymandering reasons, due to just the way trends are going in a lot of places compared to others. um, People moving out of urban areas and into more sparse locations. Things are just starting to favor Republicans more on a broad level. And so Democrats were talking this game earlier this year in 2021 about we need to get some big wins on the board. We need to take this action seriously we need to really define ourselves away from the republicans and people like us who were pretty abysmal and pessimistic about the prospects of the democratic party doing this because we've been burned very recently um not just very recently but like again over the past decade so recently enough to know how this era of the democratic party plays we were skeptical about their ability or willingness to see through this change they were telling us no no you gotta wait first 100 days first few months you gotta there's strategic things going in line and once you get to mid june mid july we'll have deadlines for this and i want to pass that by this time and nothing we're just getting the same hands tied behind our back look at what the republicans are doing not like we just got elected in a really like a turning point election and could possibly use the bully pulpit in any way whatsoever to get public support for things that are polling well uh, you're just getting the same stuff from the Democratic Party. And so like, if I could for a moment just focus on the Nina Turner race, like what more do you think? Because the, the counterpoint coming from the Kamala Harris, like uh, K-Hive folks is that she raised all this small dollar money and did all this well. So how can you say that uh, big money is taking out the campaign or take, or like making it so Nina Turner can't win or whatever? What would you say in response to that, for example, and how would you like diagnose this from a perspective of where the left could have done better and can improve for like future efforts like this?
2: couple takeaways. I mean, one, that talking point, they really are hammering home, oh, Nina outraised Chantal Brown two to one is what they're saying. You've seen it a lot. That doesn't include the two and a half million in outside spending that happened in the final like two to three weeks of the race uh dmfi democratic majority for israel spent two million just about in one month and over a million of which were just on attack ads including mailers that blatantly lied about her stances and and policies that she supported nina turner they insinuated she doesn't support raising the minimum wage they insinuated she doesn't support uh medicare for all at or, or a um immigration reform because she voted against the, I think, the 2016 Democratic platform. Everybody in this space will tell you that it's bullshit. It's absolute bullshit. No one cares about the Democratic platform. It 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 isn't uh, some sort of doctrine that they must follow and adhere to. And if it was, there wouldn't be sanctions on Cuba. The embargo wouldn't be on Cuba because that's part of the 2016 platform. And that should show you how little that actually means. She voted against it at the convention, along with 25% of attendees and participants, because it didn't include... Medicare for all. There wasn't a Medicare for all plank while it was proposed. There was an amendment that she proposed. Um, So it's kind of like inside baseball. They used to lie about her, Um, and I I, no nobody in their right mind can look at a million dollars in negative ads uh, in the final three weeks of an election and think that it doesn't have an impact. They're they're just lying by omission. So they don't want to include that people didn't donate to Chantelle Brown's campaign because. You know, she's just not really an inspiring candidate. She won because they helped suppress turnout from Dems uh, and the suburbs, the largely white suburbs and and wealthy surrounding areas in Cleveland turned out largely for her. So congrats. One other thing about that, that money that, that was funneled into DMFI, funneled into Third Way, oftentimes comes from Republicans and billionaires and corporations. That district is gerrymandered like hell. There used to be two districts in Cleveland, and now there's just one. They used to have Dennis Kucinich, and they wrote his district out. So this is a heavily gerrymandered district by Republicans who have controlled the state for a decade. If you were looking at that, Republican billionaires maxing out to Chantel Brown, funneling money into dark uh, organizations to run smear ads against Nina Turner, and a gerrymandered district where the suburbs dictates what happens in the inner city of Cleveland, if you look at that and see that as a win, that's your problem because I see that as a colossal failure and a representation of how little power and little effectiveness Democrats and especially Democrats in Ohio have right now.
0: Yeah, I I have this broader overall theory, I guess, that I'll jump into earlier before I have like one last question about um I guess it'll be a good segue question going out of like the Nina Turner race and going into larger things, but um there's this thing I'm for a different project doing a lot about like cars and research about like car history and um, United States policy relating that um, but car buffs and car geeks have this thing where they refer to the 1970s as the malaise era essentially this period um, where the federal government mandated technologies that increase fuel usage while at the same time um, internal external pressur- pressures required that the government mandate that cars use less fuel. So you had the worst of both worlds, they were bad cars that ran poorly, they were expensive to own, and it just seemed like a weird period of time. And so right now, I feel like we're at this place right now where we're experiencing the worst of both worlds, where we have outcomes that are non-workable for all involved, where, I guess like, you know, the consultants, there's a consultant agency behind Chantel Brown that's like um, has chalked up another win. And so they're going to probably just like run gangbusters with that um, through t- all the way to 2022. But p- part of this malaise era is kind of realizing that w- w- there's a false security blanket, the same kind of false security blanket that we had in 2014-2015 among the same sort of like upper middle class echelon suburban elite that make up a lot of the more vocal aspects of the centrist part of the Democratic Party right now that listen we got someone who we can call a progressive she's a woman of color she was endorsed by the Congressional Black Caucus we're checking all the boxes Um, they're going to be loyal to the Democratic Party they're not going to be liable to you know uh, go against the party line or anything like that Uh, the establishment can be happy we can have some wins to take to the social justice crowd and say hey look see we're representing what you want uh, actual progressive uh, policy backbone and willingness to stand up to the party when it makes sense to stand up for that backbone on behalf of the people you're supposed to be representing be damned what do you feel like Like, do you also feel this similar like a this malaise feeling with the democratic party that it's going to like just exist we're not going to get major things done except for like you know, mandatory debt ceiling things between now and the midterms, which is like all the time we essentially have of that, but also B, that there's this security blanket that the establishment Democrats, which are the only like part of the Democratic Party that seems to get any reception from the power parts of the party, that the fact that they have this false sense of security and what that might mean, considering we both lived through that false sense of security in like 2013, 14, leading up to the Trump years.
2: I mean, again, to go back to turnout, that is that should send uh, a red flag you know, miles high in the air for anybody concerned about congressional control, because Ohio has a Senate, an open Senate seat in 2022. And the Democratic strategy to victory in Ohio in the past when Obama was running was large turnouts in Cleveland, large turnouts in Columbus. That's it. I mean, you really don't have many Democratic strongholds in the area. You're going to get some in Toledo, some in Cincinnati. Youngstown used to be a Democratic stronghold. Now it's a Trump area. So, I mean, even to bring it back to cars, that is a that is a huge labor and industrial area that has now gone to Trump. Now, why is that? It's because there's people living there, even union people who have seen Democratic policies over the past few decades have decimated the area. That area has been consistently Democratic Going back to the '70s, I mean, this is even during the steel mill crash, they still stuck with Democrats, and now they don't believe in that party anymore. That's that is remarkable that Trump would win an area like Youngstown, historically one of the biggest union strongholds in the country, home to some uh, some uh, of the, the 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 biggest auto manufacturing plants in the country, and they've seen shift closure after uh, you know job uh, um. Job shipped overseas to NAFTA, and a, and a Democratic candidate in 2016 that proposed the TPP. Uh, going into 2020, Biden lost that area, so you don't you can't even rely on that anymore. And now you have the Congress, the congressman in that area running for Senate. Do you do you think you're going to do that with a 16% turnout in Cleveland? I mean, good luck. If do you want to do you want to pass anything? And my my. my but I read on that as they don't. They enjoy being an opposition party. So that malaise is is a trickle down effect from their inability to govern, their unwillingness to stand for bold, progressive policy changes, and a general contempt for people's material needs and material conditions. They do not care. And that sets up the possibility where hollow right wing populists and demagogues can take advantage of that, can prey on that, just like Trump did. But you have more skilled and savvy and less offensive, less crude politicians on the right waiting in the wings to do that, to roll out that rhetoric. You're seeing J.D. Vance even try it, citing and heralding Victor Orban, heralding uh, far right fascist policies from Europe, now in his own Senate uh, campaign in Ohio. And his opponent josh mandel is running an openly and blatantly christian fascist campaign it is inexplicably linked or inextricably linked to churches in ohio so those are your two choices on the right and both of those will prey on the vulnerable prey on the weak exploit the working class and uh, on the behalf of corporations and special interests and at the end of the day the people on the front lines are women people of color marginalized communities immigrants Uh, members of the LGBTQIA plus community, etc. That is dangerous. And because the Democrats are so beholden to corporate interests, that's what they're setting up. That's the dynamic they're willing to create. Even lip service to some of these ideas is effective for the right.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for illustrating that like urgency of the matter because on the right-wing side, you have options bad and worse. And uh, like we kind of said earlier in this like episode, the Democrats are not acting... To the same rhetoric they had earlier this year where they have to you know desperate times call for desperate measures this is the time where we need to pull out all the stops make sure that we fight against not just republican obstruction but this overall measure to take over all forms of government essentially and we're at that like place now where they're very clearly not doing that and the republicans are ready to go they're ready to like you said employ fear and exploit um, hatred and resentment of other people in order to get political power And so, kind of like shifting gears a little bit into the Democrats here, there's still the argument of what is the left doing, what can the left do right now in this moment to kind of, you know, at bare minimum, make things moderately less bad. I know it's like damning with faint praise here, but like what can they do um, to help with the... Yeah, like what's the case going on, especially when you have like a feckless uh, Joe Biden administration who like just recently was willing to let the eviction moratorium expire. And people don't realize that if you have an eviction on your record, like, okay, let's say you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get one of those like menial jobs that, of course, are readily available, but are like in the heat of a pandemic where you have people who are openly refusing to get vaccines in a country where we have the most vaccines in a world where vaccines are scarce. Like, you have people who, even if you have people like that who are able to get a job, right, after they've been evicted, it's going to be so hard for them to get another place because you're going to go on their record and it's going to be like, oh, you've been evicted one time? Oh, very recently? I don't know if you're stable. And then you you have Joe Biden talking about this crisis of homelessness and then people who are unhoused barely I think he's not talking or acting about it nearly enough considering how severe the issue is but he was, he was he was just willing to let the eviction moratorium expire and it would have had like lasting ramifications and ripple effects for not just like people's livelihoods but just general income building and wealth building for America especially for communities of color and people of color who are often hit by these things most and then Cory Bush kind of like comes to the rescue here and does this like st- um kind of like nights-long standoff at the Capitol, kind of, like, making sure to protest to bring attention to this. And then Joe Biden extends the eviction moratorium for a little bit longer, at least, like, calls to have, like, some action done there. And it seems like... It, oh, never mind the fact that you have a whole cottage industry of people calling, like, Cory Bush a sellout even before she even got into office, um, contrasted with these very tangible things she's doing and her lived experience with housing insecurity. But what... Do you think is like the, the best path forward for like the squad, the folks that are in the Congress and in the Senate right now, except like Bernie Sanders and anyone else, any other takers who wants to help? Um, are, is it these like outside measures where you're combining um, institutional inside power with like grassroots movement and attention and pressure to get things that way? Because so far, like working through the halls of power,
2: making deals with Nancy Pelosi, like it, that hasn't been working, honestly. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think there's a two-pronged approach that they should be taking. More things like this. And I, I, yeah, I, I'm deeply appreciative of of what uh, Cory Bush did. I was down there Saturday night, shortly before it expired, and she seemed, you know, kind of tired but upbeat, and she was upbeat because people came to support her. Um, Some of the people that came came to harangue her about force the vote, which I thought was hilarious and just really reflects how detached some of these people are. Um. But I think a good inside outside strategy is appropriate. And I point out that in 2017, uh, Bernie barnstormed the Rust Belt to galvanize support for progressive policies. And, you know, very few people uh, went with him, but a group like Move On put it together. And I think the squad could, should, should do something similar in West Virginia and with Arizona. And in Arizona, because you have. You know, Manchin and cinema effectively blocking the entire Biden agenda because they refused to uh, support killing the filibuster. Um, and Biden, while he could, uh, bar, uh, you know, use the bully pulpit, they did once with with uh, Harris early on and Manchin got mad and they stopped. You're letting this guy, this one guy who's holding up your agenda boss you around. So I think the squad should do it. They're going to draw crowds. They're going to they're going to bring people um, if you position it in maybe Charleston or Morgantown, you know, College Town, you're going to get a decent crowd. You're going to get press attention, too. So I think they should they should consider both of those approaches. Uh, Oh, I'm sorry. That that is one. And the other is voting as a block in the House oftentimes they are they are fractured. They need to actually vote as a block because the Congressional Progressive Caucus, while people thought they were going to, they thought there was going to be more uniform structure and guidelines, really isn't panning out. They've kind of capitulated on several big things, including a paycheck guarantee early on. Unfortunately, that hasn't really manifested in the way that a group like the Congressional Black Caucus has acted in unison to enact uh, their policy priorities. Sadly, that is often... Uh, to the benefit of corporations. So, if the CPC did something similar, that would be great and effective. But really, they only have a three-four vote margin in the House. It, all you need is Talib, Omar, AOC, Bowman, and Bush acting in unison, and they can do whatever they want. They could they could bring things to a screeching halt. They say they're going to do it with the infrastructure bill. We'll see.
0: Yeah, I and that's kind of where I want to get to it because I think I, <laughs> of course, like the dark person in, in me like wants to there to be like some lightning rod moment where everyone rises up and the workers will miss nothing but their change kind of like marching in the streets like mass strike of thing. of course that's like not how things work unless you're grifting on the internet for patreon dollars but like i i, I worry i think the rent situation was very material to people um, it's very close to home. It was very urgent. Like it was something that could have d- been done like on an executive basis. That is a really good case of where like um, the squad, like dual pronged approach you liked. And I also love like to my friends out there on the far left who are like, listen, we can't do any, we can't have any like a uh, hope for um, institutional support or like we can't like try to get people elected that's wasted effort we need to actually focus on revolution i always say take a two-pronged approach because when you have people banging on the doors outside it helps to have people on the inside as well don't misinterpret that as like a storming the capital thing that's just like a political strategy thing right <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> but like uh, unactionable parody allegedly in minecraft so the <laughs> i i worry when it gets to things that are still very important like um student debt might be a step above that but very similar you know it's something that's within the executive's ability to do that whether corn pop admits it or not but then you get to things that are a lot less tangible to regular folks that i think might be a little bit harder to mobilize folks around like the um like the cuban embargo just like the fast tracking of deportations that we're having at the southern border that's like really inhumane considering COVID 19 and what we're doing right there but like I could also think of the fact that we're not, like, yeah, the infrastructure deal's going through and all these other things, but the urgency on climate that's required, considering how many people are very energized by this and how little the Biden administration is actively acting towards it, I think is a huge missed opportunity. So, do you think this dual pronged approach will still work? Or, like, what do you think will be tweaked and what can be done to help, like, from the inside, like, what can the squad do? And then, what can be done on the outside as, like, people who want to provide support?
2: Oof. I, 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 all, all, on your point earlier about the dual pronged approach, I think people are really missing the forest for the trees if they can't recognize utility in these types of things that, like what Bush did, and even the the squad voting as a block in the House as useful now, because look, we all agree that if that was if that was to continue if that moratorium continued to remain expired, things would be bad. And I want to assume that people who are frustrated and saying, don't even bother, in many respects, mean well. But I cannot bring myself to be like, okay, well, I guess things have to get worse. uh, And we can't do anything right now to at least stop this current suffering because it's not the best long-term solution. That That doesn't make sense to me. And I think we could... We should be realistic um, in, in how we approach these things. And unfortunately, there's a bunch of demagogues on the left who have gained audiences and whipped Patreon subscriptions and whipped YouTube subs, and et cetera, by reinforcing this like hysterical hyperbolic narrative that this fraud squad is is standing in the way, and they ultimately are working for Pelosi and whatever. You know, brings to mind that clip from Michael Brooks, who's just kind of mocking one of the the chief uh, clowns in this brigade, just pointing out how, you know, it's it's really okay to look at things structurally. And if you don't want to do that, which sure, if you want to just do commentary, go for it. But like, don't get mad at other people when they acknowledge there is a process to some of this stuff, whether you like it or not. You can't pretend it doesn't exist. And if that informs if that mindset informs how you approach these types of things, you're doing everyone a disservice and you're misleading people. So yes, sometimes things are frustrated. We're going to take a lot of losses. That's the nature of being uh, on the left and going up against a systemically corrupt uh, institution like the federal government and Congress. Like You have to acknowledge the realities of the situation. Be realistic about the landscape in front of you. Uh, But to act like you could just unilaterally do these types of things as one or two uh, lefty legislators is just so Un- detached and untethered from realities. It's really pathetic that anyone even listens to that. So that's frustrating. Um, but yeah, just to reinforce the 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 voting as a block while you have it now, taking a multi-pronged approach is, is the best institution or the best institutional approach. But also it, just people listening, people participating. Just you have to. You have to start with grassroots organizing. You have to join an organization that you find a, a space in, like a DSA or like an IWW, something like that, and get involved in mutual aid in your community. Otherwise, you're just kind of in the way. If you are, if you are sitting back and complaining, saying nothing is nothing is possible, nothing's going to happen, nothing better can nothing better can happen, and criticizing people like Cory Bush and saying their activism is is performative and you're not doing anything as an alternative you're not helping you're you're just a cynic and you're using that cynicism to cover your your own uh flaws and your own inability to participate and be constructive
0: yeah like if if you're deciding that it's like not the fight for you sure that's like something that people decide to say but like don't knock down the people who are making the fight for you or like doing it like the right way or doing it the proper way just because you think you can whip up a narrative where you are it's a versus situation and then by getting people to be on your side you can get the so much of a rise out of them they start sending you money like it's a tried and true tactic that goes back to talk radio that like Is now continuing in this like self funded era. But I think you gave really, really good, cogent like analysis on overall where to go from both like internally what we should have expectations on for the squad. Because I don't think we're saying that everything they're doing is perfect and they're incapable of not doing any wrong, but that they're useful being in where they are in office right now to provide us with support with the policy goals they have. And they're far more useful than the rest of the Democratic Party, so we should be thinking about how to um, best pressure them and also best support them on their um, goal to pressure the rest of the Democratic Party while we're doing this. Good efforts on that and also just getting people to, reminding people to get involved, find organizations that work well for them, and just put more people power, get in that aspect of the movement that's a good aspect as well but we've been dancing around this one thing and i know i have you for a limited amount of time but we've been dancing around the aspect of like these the the people who are in the way right and we don't need to like name them by names there's going to be enough drama for that in a different portion of this episode let's say but like i want to get to one sort of like twitter discourse thing and that's sort of about the definition of grifter and so i want to know like how do you feel about like that term and whether you think it's being overused because i've heard like really good like comments from like becca lewis jared holt um from about like how there needs to be more nuance around the term let's say but i mean for better or worse i've just been using it for a long time to describe um certain folks who i may have been maybe we both have been in similar like uh, by association right um, people who have like decided to leave the left and find some other money and just like grifter was the perfect term and this like term sort of flew up into other people with other platforms who are also using it and then these platforms have audiences and they use the term so like I'm open to maybe there's a more specific term for this method or phenomena of pseudo political figures performing and stoking up people's emotions for fast money scams and to sell boner pills but like, what's your take on that whole thing? <laughs>
2: um, it is it is extremely overused. It's a very liberally deployed term that really rose to prominence in the early Trump years. I mean, there are people that I think you could call grifters. Uh, I think people who who do scam packs. That is, ap- that is a mechanism where people very clearly bring in money and pay themselves and do little work. You know throw up a billboard every once in a while billboards are extremely cheap easy to deploy cost like you know next to nothing takes no real work uh, uh, no real work no real effort but you can bring in like tens of thousands of dollars just saying you did it because people will think that's making a difference that's a grift people are selling merchandise that is a grift i think there's a different term for people who are actually producing content whether good or bad who are actually doing you know doing a radio show whether you know doing some sort of press mechanism If you want to characterize their commentary as hyperbolic and hysterical, you know, maybe snake oil salesmen, people who are giving advice, encouraging people to take actions, people who are doing X, Y, and Z that aren't realistic, but, you know, make people feel good in a similar way that Hannity did for so many years. Maybe like a snake oil salesman is the best uh, term to describe people like that. But the way they throw that word around to just describe anybody they don't like, like, People have, you know, in 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 our former networks who do media elsewhere, maybe have different stances now. I don't necessarily think they're grifters because they are producing a product. Um, they're 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 actually working towards something. Uh, but people doing like scammy T-shirts, s- fake packs, things like that, I think that's. Uh, that, that strikes me as a grift i mean people people will call anybody a grifter i've been called a grifter and it's like buddy i wish where's the money <laughs>
1: i've
2: worked in nonprofits and i'm buried in grad school debt like wh- when does that when's that check come in because i would uh, i would love to see it
0: folks people need to understand i spend all of my like extra money on making myself appear nice on camera in my room everything else is just broke ass living pop-tarts and goldfish baby. <laughs> like this is that's it um no but like it's and again i i i have a pretty i guess agnostic opinion on this but i like genuinely want to learn so like my pushback is not like a defensive thing it's just more like a question but um i can definitely sympathize with the overuse of some of these phrases as well because um i got to see like again dancing around some certain lines i got to see certain figures uh learn the word gaslighting and understand the phrase and then start to like overuse it and then like it sort of waters down the thing it's really unfortunate because like um i think people can learn that at a time especially in their lives when they realize that's happening to them or it's like something that's happened in their lives it's a very important and cogent tool that gets into um psychology i don't think people relational psychology i don't think people get a lot of but now you get this like we're being gaslit by aoc and the squad because they choose to not go with this one comedian's, like, ridiculously easy tip to get Medicare for all. Like
2: One weird, weird trick the squad doesn't <laughs> want you to know about. <laughs> Congress,
0: was, Congress, uh, Congresswomen, con- ha- Congresswomen hate hate him. <laughs>
2: <laughs> There's a carve-out, I will say. If, if there are multiple witnesses to you saying, not you specifically, but one person out there in this world responding to Bernie losing by saying, well, time to make some money. You might be a grifter. And this person knows who they are, and they're definitely employing this strategy. You might even know who this person is, but if that's your reaction, time to make some money, you're a grifter. That's it, because you're not in it for the cause. That was that was a huge moral defeat for people who believed in that camp, campaign, who looked up to him, who you know, knocked on doors, who volunteered, who did text campaigns uh canvassing donating whatever the reaction from 99.9 percent of people was not hey this is an opportunity to make some money it was wow this fucking sucks so if you're in that small percentage yeah absolutely people could be keep people can have different views people can be kind of harebrained, hysterical whatever i'm sure they might think the same about us but if you're guided by a, a set of ideals and beliefs However that plays out, if you find work doing that honest work, sure, fine. I, I don't want to call you a grifter, but if you are flip-flopping, uh, doing 180s on previous stances and you are purely motivated by money, yeah, that's that's a you problem. That's a character flaw.
0: Yeah, and even beyond that, I I guess you can sort of draw the lines and make Content judgments, and I certainly will I, i'm not, not, not in details, but like I certainly will. I think there are certain shows that make more of an effort to do editorial work, and there are certain hosts who care to varying levels of editorial work, and we've seen it like we can all like put it together, have some nice like, d- graphics, do a show or whatever, and we can all look the same, but like the same show can have like a bunch of Google Docs or like physical stacks of papers of research they've done of that day. Or the other person can just be like, "I'm just gonna scroll through Twitter, I'm gonna open some articles, see what happens, react in real time, not really like go into further details, skim it, and just get my audience in a rage." Um, and like, th- those are two different methods. and I definitely don't think like w- w- both of them are an honest like ju- day's work, honestly. But like, and I'm also uh, not saying that you're saying that either. But like, that's just yeah. in my overall um, definition of grift. I'm also super happy to move on from that term they've taken that word we need to have a new it's it's the g word now we can reclaim a different yeah. thing um and uh I'm, I'm totally open for new suggestions and maybe we'll have more annoying ass discourse about the thing you and i wanted to put to bed like one week in january and it's still going uh, on
2: yeah you would i you know it was funny we were talking on insurgents yesterday we were recording an episode and that came up and i was thinking back to why we even talked about it and it was because you know people in that world wanted our opinion on it and you were the guest on that episode. And we weighed in and we were like, okay, I mean, sure, it's not the best strategy. It's a strategy, but you could do that with every piece of legislation because there's only a few vote differential between, you know, the Democrats and Republicans. Squad could just enact their will that way. And that we even suggested there were other ways led to people getting mad, which shows they weren't really committed to the end goal. It was just, we think that this guy is telling us the truth and that's and this is our cult of personality manifesting here in your replies. Sad is really, really pathetic.
0: It's it's a manifestation because I do know these people personally. It's a manifestation of self-esteem issues, but like you and I both come from activist spaces and we did the right things of like, hey, listen, not the best idea, but I hear where you're coming from. Here's another range of ideas that I am ready to go with you for. Can you do this with me? Like hand out olive branch. And these folks were like, no, my way or the highway. And so that's when I say like, I'm not organizing with these force to vote fuckheads ever. Like I I I wouldn't I wouldn't in a room want to figure out what to eat for dinner with these people, let alone actually do like put any political organizing because that works hard with people you agree with. It can get daunting and like you can like leave yep. a lot of blood, sweat, tears on the floor with people you agree with and like truly like love and care about and really respect with. I'm not gonna go through that for some fuckheads when shit is as serious as it is right now. So like, oh yeah, the yeah. end
2: result was keeping Pelosi in power and a loss on the floor on a Medicare for All vote. What kind of fair deal is that? What how, that? Sorry, no. I want to exchange those things for for bigger promises, bigger, <laughs> bigger wins, and you can do that with things like the infrastructure bill. And I hope they do that. You know, you could you could argue whether or not they'll actually use that as a tactic. I think they should, and I think that voting as a block, which was. Kind of the core of force to vote is a good approach, but it wasn't about that. It was for speakership. And now we see the biggest cheerleader in Nina Turner's loss in the New York Times article about it today is Akeem Jeffries, who would have replaced Pelosi had she been ousted in January. That's who you want? Okay, sure. Uh,
0: I I'm I, I'm so appreciative that I can in the otherwise like malaise that I'm personally in where I'm going through Twitter where it's just like bad take after bad take, I can have moments of clarity with you and understand that like, I'm not a crazy person and there is a way out of this and we all like kind of get our heads out of the sand, stop falling for the easy seduction of, you know, like talking heads and figures in the media, even the ones we agree with on the left who say things that seem nice, but ultimately when it comes down to where the solutions are, um, get down into spirals of, like demoralization and demoralizing people once you realize that those are the people that are you're consuming or your people around are consuming you have to like make a conscious change and figure out okay do i want to keep consuming doom content all day maybe it's fine it gets my mind off of like work or whatever else i've got going on but like if you care about this if you're watching these kinds of shows you care about making a difference so like you can act and watch and be a bystander you can get involved and You can waste time with the people who make money off of you being a bystander and not getting involved or you can use your money and use your resources towards actually doing it and i'm glad that like um folks like you do a good job of just doing the networking stuff of connecting the right people but also just the activism work as well of um applying the pressure when it needs to on our allies and our opponents, and so that's great tangible work you do. You're actually like your money comes where your mouth is with a lot of pundits, and that's not what I can say about a lot of folks. So appreciate your time, Jordan, for coming on.
2: Wow, that's all very kind. I'm happy to be here anytime, Dan.
0: Thank you. For, thank you for having me. That was Jordan Ewell, co-host of the Insurgents with Jordan Ewell and Rob Rousseau. You can find that wherever you get podcasts. Um, also host of Deep Dive with Jordan Yule, streaming at twitch.tv slash tyt. You can catch him on Twitter, of course, at Jordan Yule. That's Jordan U-H-L on Twitter. And yeah, thank you uh, very much for joining me. Thank you for listening to that. And that was, that, that was really enlightening, honestly. Um, it was nice to hear, not necessarily that someone who agreed with what I was saying, but also someone who is really grounded in these conversations and has a pretty clear path forward. Um, whether or not folks on the internet will take our suggestions and maybe listen to us is another story altogether, but we do the best we can. So there were a number of topics that unfortunately there were very like, uh, definitely newsworthy that I didn't get to cover on PowerPoint. I don't mean to say that there weren't, um, but... There's only so much that I can cover, and um, these other things will be topics I'll talk about with um, guests and interviews and other things like that in future episodes, definitely. Um, but one thing I definitely have to talk about here, coming correct,
1: is putting billionaires in place with the space race here. So in july i guess that'll be
0: one of the things in this uh summer doldrums we're doing this uh will we won again thing with COVID 19 and i've got a little bit more on that later um or a different segment of powerpoint if you're watching this is a youtube clip but one thing this like weird silly season summer will be noticed about or will be known or remembered for in 2021 is the billionaire space race with um richard branson uh, Virgin Galactic, representing that I guess, because uh, we're doing private enterprises now. I guess uh, Je- Jeff Bezos, uh, f- CEO of former CEO of Amazon, I guess, executive of Amazon now, um, representing Blue Origin, and then Elon Musk with SpaceX, also known from Tesla, PayPal, uh, Solar City, a number of other ventures. Um, what was really seen as this. Uh, wonderful moment i guess for a number of uh well at least elon musk and jeff bezos are american in this context uh but what was seen is like this you know when for the Amer- not just the american dream or american innovation let's say this was just celebrated overall as just a broad victory for humanity that we're having these uh people who have dodged taxes um exploited hundreds if not thousands if not tens of thousands of workers and then if you go across the supply chain many many more um, to get and obtain their billions and sustain their billions Um,
1: a celebration of their ability to do a publicity stunt as also essentially like an ego trip for all three of them because they're all competing with each other for government contracts it's Definitely an issue in the media. And we'll talk about the media's role in this at the very end. But
0: it definitely just needs to be taken as its own, as a moment that is
1: representative of, like, definitely an aspect of some world of American innovation. And I say this because this represents a long-term
0: trend of something that the government... Or, like, you know, the public sector can very easily do. As in, NASA can also be sending people to low Earth orbit. They've done it very well. Uh, they've sent people to space. They've sent people to the moon historically. Um, what happened overall was their budget was cut. Um, NASA's percentage of their federal budget was at its highest in the mid 60s during the peak of the space race. Of course, and you have um, competition coming from that, as it always tends to be and tends to happen. But at that point, you had spending for NASA making up just a little over 4% of the federal budget. And since then, since the 70s, as you slide into the neoliberal era with Republican presidents and then Democratic presidents who promised little peaks here and there of increased spending, but nothing near the 4% of uh, government spending that it used to be, of the of 4% of the federal budget that it used to be, usually never topping over 1%, oftentimes getting to just...
1: Half of 1%. Below half of 1% in recent years. Republicans led the charge, and Democrats, like we said, led, made paltry
0: additions, but they ultimately led this trend of defunding NASA and deprioritizing in the rhetoric the idea that Uh, the government should be spending money on going to space because it's better that the government spend money on going to war or if we're going to go to space on weapons that we can use in space to go
1: to war with other countries that are also building their own space weapons. Hence Trump's movement towards a space force. But it's not that that, you know, desire of human beings to go to space ended. It's just that, or it's not
0: that that money went away either it's just that money went to the private sector and allowed the private sector and it's unaccountable to states method pursue space travel and you know there's a lot of these things are fairly regulated like space travel is of course heavily regulated and so a lot of these missions can't occur without certain methods of scrutiny at least once they're happening But when it comes to getting there, when it comes to production of these things, when it comes to making sure the workers are treated fairly when they're building these things, to making sure as many of these jobs are happening in the United States as possible, to make sure these companies are putting resources into education in communities uh, that traditionally don't get it so they can become a part of this space mission so space can become more of an equitable project and not just a billionaire space ploy. These are all the things that happen when you take away public funding in the matters, because yes, of course, you have unaccountable politicians on the Republican side, not also on the Democratic side, as we just talked about abnuse in a segment earlier. Um, however, at least when it is in the public sector, you have a little bit more accountability and a slighter chance to have some accountability
1: in where that money goes and what happens with those funds if that makes sense and some accountability and ability to investigate if that money is being improperly used so now you have this point we're at where because
0: of our lax tax system not just in the united states but um in britain where richard branson resides and also in the european union and also in a all of other places where the rich can dodge taxes or otherwise um, avoid paying what would be their fair share by their government standards or just by by general society standards when we have um, poverty at the extent to which we do. At the same time, we have wealth to the extent to which we do. They always say, oh, you know, more and more people are being lifted out of global poverty than ever. People are making a dollar a day, two dollars a day. We're growing in capital as a society globally, like way more than you know, what a dollar a day, $2 a day per person can allow. We can still have rich people. We can still have like forms of inequality where you have like rich people and relatively poor people to those rich people. But you don't have these like companies that are worth trillion dollars with CEOs that are worth hundreds of billions of dollars and then a homelessness situation and people who are living on the street. These are concerns that, you know, us working folk have. Um, Us folks who are on the ground here we're going to be stuck while these billionaires have their space dreams. And on those space dreams for a moment, uh we also have heard about uh Elon Musk's fantasies about colonizing the moon and you know, uh moving humanity off of earth because climate change is unsolvable and there's no point in doing anything to pressure companies on earth right now to take any responsibility for their impact on climate change right now and instead just say, screw it, let's take on the scientific venture of finding
1: out how to exist on other planets and spend on expertise on that rather than helping people who are alive today.
0: That's such an insane kind of point from Elon Musk. And then he takes that to, noted South African Elon Musk, takes us to a point of space colonization. That's an insane idea. But people are also starting to get ideas of Jeff Bezos and what he wants to do in space now that he um, has done this Blue Origin flight. Um, during his valedictorian speech in high
1: school, he spoke about dreams of space tourism, like having hotels in space and all these different things.
0: Clearly, the bullying back when Jeff Bezos was a kid was not like up to par. You know, they, they said, like, oh, you know, these kids are soft these days uh, with the internet and whatnot. You know, maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. But if Jeff Bezos was allowed to make this speech and didn't get the shit kicked out of him, <laughs> like, like, by bullies, <laughs> for being like, I, 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 want, to, I want to have
1: s- hotels in space. <laughs> like, that's, that's insane. Never mind the lack of sustainability and also how, like, inaccessible, like, space tourism would be. But recently, Jeff Bezos had the idea of sending
0: trash into space, like sending debris into space, essentially. Elon Musk is of the opinion that the only way we can handle uh, pollution and climate change is just like give up on Earth and try to colonize other planets. I guess that's a South African way to go. But Jeff Bezos is saying that we should take all the polluting things that happen on Earth and just blast them off into space. So we just start creating like a sacrifice zone, I think it was called in one um, instance. So we're sending all of our dirty pollutants into space when we don't know the science of that. We didn't know the science of uh, climate change and fossil fuels and those things when we started the Industrial Revolution. And so now we're just going to mess with the unknown science of sending things out into space, or let alone the ethics of sending trash out into space.
1: the the gall
0: of Jeff Bezos to make these decisions far outside of the accountability of the U.S. government. Now, it's very likely and possible that the U.S. government would decide to uh, do space pollution as well. But then you could call senators, you could have people protest and march and things like that, and there's some semblance, some idea of accountability there. And, And it's not just a semblance, an idea of accountability. Things can actually get done. Through those measures, people have been uh, disenfranchised and uh, disillusioned by, uh, and uh, honestly, an earlier Malay's era, era of the Obama administration and being unable to handle these things. Um, and being unable to, by handle these things, I mean being able and able to work against the obstructionist Republican Party to get things done, resulting in an era where people had to live under the reality that politicians and politics is inherently um, an exercise in which. People perform policy proposals, but in reality, nothing tangibly gets done for an increasingly shrinking middle class and an increasingly um, tightening and pressurized working class to contrast a, an increasingly comfortable uh, upper middle class and elite, I guess, if you will. And so the secondly add insult to injury. In addition to all these bad space ideas from these billionaires who are completely unaccountable to the public, because one could also say, well, we could all just boycott Amazon. Jeff Bezos gave a really a decent reason to doing so by saying that um, one pe- the group of people he was thanking the most for his uh, space exercises were
1: Amazon customers, and subscribers, Prime subscribers, and their employees. So if you bought things from Amazon Prime, and uh, you know what? It's guilty
0: i've done it unfortunately i try to and i have been for a long time now curtail my use of amazon um out of principle there is no ethical consumption under capitalism but there's definitely certain businesses you can choose to not partake in and amazon definitely has a number of competitors who have stepped up their game as a result of amazon and they um offer comparable services to what they need if you need to have these things delivered to you um but nevertheless, he's thanking Amazon workers and their customers. Let's focus on the customers for a moment for basically paying his way to going to space. Those customers aren't just paying the way, paying Jeff Bezos and his brother's way to going to space um, just through Amazon
1: Prime's inscriptions. It's also the fact that Jeff Bezos and Amazon do quite a lot of tax dodging. According to a lot of um, reports that have been done by outlets
0: like ProPublica, for example, and the New York Times, who've taken a look at um, both the company, Amazon and the people behind the, these billionaires behind these companies, who pay very little in taxes, the people working underneath them making 30,000, 40,000, 50,000, 60,000, 80,000 dollars a year. $120,000 a year, $140,000 a year are paying more
1: in taxes than these billionaires and these multimillionaires. And so, because the rich avoid paying these taxes, it's a de facto
0: subsidy that's allowing them to go to space. It's money that we're giving them to do the space race that we don't get to have, that we lose in accountability in going to space. We lose in... Um, Possibly having an ethic system that might be accountable to you know a proper society, instead giving an ethic system to these highly unethical billionaires. You know what Jeff Bezos does with his employees? Because he also thanks his employees, his employees who he barely allows to have bathroom breaks, his employees who he tracks like
1: uh, rodents in a lab experiment. He thanks his employees. who he viciously union busts (laughs) using every tool at corporate America's disposal to prevent and discourage those workers from seeking rights that they so desperately need. The
0: fact that workers at Amazon and people who deliver packages for Amazon are having to urinate in their trucks for delivery because of the tight schedules that Jeff Bezos is putting on. Oh, but at least he thanks them because he can do a joyride in going to space. And he knows that PR is bad. Jeff Bezos knows this as a concept he's unpopular. He's an ultra-billionaire. He has a bad history with pre- treating people like absolute garbage. You can go into the history of how he's like tried to massage his image throughout history um, when he's really just like a cutthroat monopolist who has put uh, many small businesses out of business. So he decided to paper over his image. And it's important that I'm mentioning this because billionaires often do this where they paper over their image with um, large donations to the arts, the sciences, to politics. Um, but often there's a message behind them. And this one was really, really clear and um, very, very coonish, if I might add. So um, after returning to space, th- th- there's one thing where Jeff Bezos brought um, an astronaut who was one of like, the first female astronauts but wasn't allowed to go into space because she was a woman. Um, she became like one of the oldest people to, I think yeah, the oldest person to travel to space. And um, so there are a couple of other different like flares and things that were thrown out there by Jeff Bezos to make him seem less like a cutthroat person here. But he also came and donated $100 million each to Jose Andres and Van Jones. Um, Jose Andres is a chef and Van Jones is a TV analyst so-called activists, mostly a CNN pundit. Um, and I'm not gonna I can't really speak so much for um, Jose Andres. Um, don't know much about him, so I'm gonna leave him out of my commentary for this, but I'll just say for Van Jones who has gone on CNN and done this whole thing where he tries to appeal to a side that is very clearly and very outwardly shown they will not appeal to him um, if not only just for the color of his skin, but for the idea that they believe that anyone who appears like him um, or you know, wants to help people uh, achieve a more equitable you know, life for themselves and their families, the same thing as the supposed American dream, labels him as a communist, label anyone who agrees with anything remotely like him or even a centrist version of what he says as a communist, Van Jones continues to act in this bad faith world and um,
1: patronize these people for a paycheck. I say all this because Jeff Bezos called it the Courage and Civility Award. And Jeff Bezos was saying that we need unifiers
0: and not vilifiers. We live in a world where sometimes instead of disagreeing with someone's ideas, we question their character or their motives. Guess what? After you do that, it's pretty damn hard to do work with that person. We should
1: really always be questioning ideas, not the person. Which is a really interesting thing for Jeff Bezos to be saying, because ideas unfortunately are not separate from the people that are espousing them. They can't be separated. Some people try to separate them. They're do as I say, not as I do people. And these people have
0: to be as transparent as possible when these instances arise. But your character matters very much. We saw that with Donald Trump. We saw that with um, Democrats who act out as well. People like to uh, Conservatives like to, aha... Uh-huh, and put uh, Ralph Northam in people's faces as though like Democrats and especially black people especially don't hate the governor of North Carolina who appeared with a
1: um, hood in his form, um wearing a Klan hood. They say, aha, well, he's a Democrat. He's on your side. You're not calling for is like, listen, the Democratic Party is an establishment that protects its own. If the insurgent left had a lot more power, if it were true that the communists were in charge, yeah, Ralph Northam, that that governor from Virginia, or, yeah, Virginia, or whatever, he'd be gone. Um. Yes, it's Virginia, not North Carolina, just to be sure. Uh, Virginia. I just meant to double check that and make sure. But um, the reason Jeff Bezos gave Van Jones that award is because he's one of the good ones. It's because
0: Van Jones performs a dance that is acceptable for the elites. It is, oh, you're doing these things, you're saying all the right words, you're talking about social justice and uh, BIPOC and uh, uh, environmental racism and all those different things. You're saying all the buzzwords and you're, 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 you're approachable at dinner parties and fundraisers. And there's some photos of you holding signs. You can say you walk the walk or whatever.
1: You appear on CNN. You're an analyst there. And you're accepted in those circles. But at the end of the day, with $100 million,
0: Van Jones is not going to pose any sort of material threat to Jeff Bezos or the billionaire hegemony that has taken fold in American society and American discourse. The fact that billionaires have so much power in society it's not something that van jones however much of an activist he claims to be however much down with it with the streets whatever he claims to be is going to be challenging with that hundred million dollars he's gotten from daddy bezos now um because he wouldn't be in that position he wouldn't be the quote-unquote civil and quote-unquote courageous one to jeff bezos the economically
1: rapacious billionaire if he wasn't performing it right Two parts from a Tribe Called Quest 2016 album we got of
0: Mir, Thank You for Your Service" are very apt here. Whatever will be, which has a Q-tip lyric that goes, "quote like a billionaire investing in a nigga's dreams," certainly a head scratcher, <laughs> and that's certainly relevant here. Although it's very clear, uh, Jeff Bezos investing in Van Jones's activist dreams is to shut him up. Just like Jeff Bezos investing in the Washington Post and the Washington Post running numerous articles in favor of billionaires and saying, oh, billionaires aren't the issue. The space race is actually really great um, that folks have been pointing out to.
1: That's an investment. That's hush money. And Van Jones will happily smile and take it. And then, of course, from the space program, same album. There ain't no space program for niggas. You stuck here. The billionaires are not our friends. They don't see themselves as part of the human community. They see themselves as
0: escaping the human community and leaving the rest of us, the underclass, those who can't afford to blast off into space and escape all of our problems, to reconcile and deal with our problems. Because they can throw out some lofty ideas and goals and things that they don't have to be held accountable to to get done, have any timelines to do. They have to like hope on their malevolence to get done. When instead, we can have a society where we have a government, where we make these decisions as a people,
1: as to how we handle these matters in the final frontier. They're robbing humanity of our very
0: own progression by concentrating the experience of planetary transcendence for the very richest, as opposed to for the greater scientific good or a path to more universal access or at the bare minimum public accountability. And for those of us who understand the game, they don't want you to be angry, they want you to be civil and thankful for the convenience and grateful for the scraps. Remember how these people treat the workers at the companies, the people who really get the job done, the people who are actually allowing them to go to space. These people, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, they're not geniuses in something, the fact they know how to exploit people to the point where they can put a really high number up on the scoreboard at the bank, right? But think of how they treat the people who actually make the miracles happen.
1: How at Tesla, Elon Musk has them walking through sludge to make deadlines. How with Jeff Bezos at Amazon, he has their workers, there's a class system at workers they're the people who work on the tech side There's people who
0: work at the beautiful amazon campuses in seattle and then they're the workers in the vans who pee in
1: bottles who if they m- miss their deadline by two minutes or take too long of a bathroom break they're fired and churned out for the next person so my last point on media coverage i said i'd be getting that at the very end It was pointed out by Media Matters that Bezos' space launch on July 20th got 212
0: minutes of coverage on this one day in July
1: 20th. 212 minutes. Compared to all of the climate coverage in 2020 on broadcast TV, that was
0: 267 minutes. So on one day, Jeff Bezos' space race
1: got just an hour shy of all the coverage climate change got in a whole year on broadcast TV. There's a th- the, the, the media
0: and the way that the broadcast media, especially here with the data, and the mainstream media more
1: broadly, pays gross attention and glorifies these this absolutely ridiculous idea that these billionaires are vanguards of the space
0: race without contextualizing the fact that we made a conscious decision as a body politic, as a government, as a group of people, whatever you want to call it, to deprioritize space and elect politicians who would deprioritize space. The fact that we made that decision is something we have to reconcile with. Leave it to Americans to bring neoliberal austerity and disaster capitalism to the final frontier. While the rest of the world struggles to get enough doses to make it out of the single digit vaccination rates, in the United States, getting a vaccine is just the latest identify in the culture wars. So here's the situation right now. The Delta variant is ravaging a number of different areas of the United States right now. It's a threatening, a reopening of economy and society. But it's also causing yet another round of confusion surrounding how to respond to the virus. Um, and with each round of confusion surrounding how to respond to the virus gets another layer and another um, tool in the tool belt of people who seek to pollute the discourse and turn vaccination and response to COVID-19 into a political exercise. And so it's important, especially in these contexts, because there are now a lot of media figures and a lot of independent media outlets out there who will pose to be leftists and will have a strong critique of the Democratic Party, but will seemingly miss a major aspect that the Republicans are substantially worse in that the Democrats are malleable. They're weak. We understand that they will spend a majority of their power against their own party and in the insurgent left. But we also know that that can be played strategically.
1: Whereas with the conservatives and with the Republicans, they are just seeking total power. They're doing whatever they can to seek total power.
0: And if that in- involves stoking racial resentment, creating nonsense conspiracies and uh, controversies throughout the media discourse because they have absolutely nothing to talk about because absolutely no legislation is actually happening. They will do whatever they can to get closer and close to power. And so it's worth remembering how we got here, and it's worth pointing out that Republicans are this bloodthirsty. They've let COVID numbers get to death rates, they'd let COVID death rates and COVID
1: infection rates get to numbers they never should have gotten to just purely out of their political greed. Because last year, a year and four months ago, maybe like in March 2020, when we were just starting to have lockdowns, the idea that the virus exists or even existed was seen as a
0: democratic hoax it was said as much so by the president. It was used to stoke anti-Chinese sentiment. It was repeatedly called and still con- um, continually called by um, brainless MAGA chuds as the quote-unquote China virus with no regard
1: for uh, not only how fundamentally offensive and racist that phrasing is, but... How that is leading directly to violence
0: in Asian communities in America, in Canada, as we talked about on Power Report, and across the world, honestly. Distrust of science and government, because remember, like a just not believing in the virus and not masking, it became a symbol of freedom for whatever reason. It became a symbol of all its anti-Chinese sentiment. And it became a symbol of distrust in science and government, distrust in all these institutions that I talked about um in uh, my Dan from the Internet video about PragerU and how Republicans have been going on this multi-decade effort to erode faith in institutions that you only trust their media figures and their media outlets to give you information, information that is politically um, palatable for their efforts and their agenda of total takeover and control. And so people are vaccine hesitant right now for a number of reasons. And some of those reasons in a vacuum could be valid. There's the fact that there's still only an emergency authorization at
1: the time we're speaking about this right now for a vaccine, right? Um, These vaccines are abundantly safe.
0: I've gotten mine. Um, And
1: the minor symptoms I had getting the vaccine were absolutely nothing compared to the
0: pain and suffering I know from people who have experienced COVID or have um, lost
1: friends, family, and loved ones to COVID-19. And this all circles back to
0: the hundreds of thousands of deaths in the United States, the millions of deaths throughout the world, and the gross undercount of all of that that we have. A lot of it was preventable. And this new Delta variant and some comments about other strains and variants that are popping up throughout the world that are more contagious than the original COVID-19 variant that spawned the initial lockdowns that may um, require booster shots from the vaccines to make sure that our bodies remain effective against these newer strains of the virus. All of this conflation away from the science and the irresponsibility of republicans and conservative pundits in america and around the world have led to this instance where humanity is helping to extinguish itself in large numbers
1: especially those who disagree with the apparent facts of the matter people are vaccine hesitant for perfectly fine reasons like we said earlier
0: but people are also vaccine hesitant for reasons that let like it became a political issue. It became about people's teams. It became about people's factions. And I've spoken about how ridiculous it is that Democrats have to be seen as seriously trying to work with a, and reason with Republicans who have proven time and time again to bend the boundaries of what's reasonable because they made protecting yourself against a virus into a political issue. They made protecting or caring about your loved ones and the possibility that they, who might be immunocompromised, um or who may otherwise have a difficulty obtaining the vaccine, might need your help in staying a little bit safe. The fact
1: that people turn that into a political issue just to score some points and gain more political power. And yet, Democrats are working with the opposing party as though that's reasonable business that's going to be handled. Remember, This is the party currently working towards
0: and doing a pretty successful job at gaining long-lasting totalitarian power of every branch of government. They're successful so far, like I said, without radical grassroots pressure. That trajectory is not going to change in this country anytime soon. And it's not only having political ramifications here, it's not only having ramifications with our climate because um, the protection that Republicans lead in the vanguard and Democrats lead um, secondarily of big business that has allowed um, pollution to happen to this degree, unfettered and unregulated without actually any, not fully unregulated, but without any actual substantial measures to address it and substantially curb all the pollutants that are happening in society. And this is just a focus on climate change, for example, but these are just negative externalities that are going on. We're getting political consequences, we're getting environmental consequences,
1: And now we're getting biological consequences because of Republicans' never-ending run towards power. And so that's the enemy. That's what we've got to work towards and fight against.
0: And so it makes nonsense happening on the Democratic side, whether it's the establishment Democrats beating on the left when the left is where most of the energy in the party is and where the future of the party clearly is when it comes to voting and uh, demographics, or when there's left-on-left idiocy that gets away from the urgency at hand and who we have to fight against. So if you didn't know, I, Dan from the internet, kind of got my start in internet political news and commentary and whatever the hell we're calling this at uh, TYT, The Young Turks. <clears throat> I started interning there around 2013 and I left in early 2020. I still appear on some shows, notably The Damage Report with John Iderola, which is a show I helped launch with the legendary Brett Ehrlich and the show's namesake, John. And um, I'd be remiss if I didn't also say that I also want to give a shout out to the diligent, hardworking staff and crew behind the scenes as well, whose voices are often too left out of these matters of, you know, leftist online drama, let's say. But needless to say, during my time there, I got to work with some absolute characters. Um, I developed a breakdown with Hassan Piker, um, among others. We... With us on Piker, especially, we saw each other both develop into the leftist commentators we are today. Um, I got to work closely with Anna Kasparian and really got to sort of, um, in some ways, nudge and in a lot of ways, just like watch her grow and um, evolve into some of her more leftist leaning um, ideas. But I also met some other characters as well. I briefly interacted with Jordan Sheridan, whose troubling past has been well discussed elsewhere. Um, There's Michael Tracy, who faked a fight with uh, Congresswoman Maxine Waters and is still incredibly not mad about it. Um, There's Dave Rubin, who would sell his soul for approval from MAGA chuds, but still can't afford brain cells. And speaking of Dave Rubin, he got uh, temporarily suspended from Twitter recently for spreading misinformation about COVID and already reached the phase of grift where he started his own doomed-to-fail social media service. So um, feel free to tweet me at Dan from the web or at Power Report World um, any of your bets for how long that website lasts. I always love those kinds of uh, guesses online. Um, and finally of note, who I'll spend a little bit of time going on here, um, is Jimmy Dore, who at TYT hosted the Jimmy Dore show and Aggressive Progressives. For a period of time, as I said, I produced a number of shows at TYT, um, and two of the shows I was staffed to produce for included those two. And so I mention all of this because the latest batch of drama <laughs> that I guess I'll talk about unlike you know, leftist online YouTube discourse, and, and I hate all of this stuff so much, um, but it kind of started when uh, Anna Kasparian and Jimmy Dore got into a battle over whether or not reports that Jimmy had taken monies from entities related to uh, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad were true or not, and of course, Syrian um, like leader Bashar al-Assad had come under fire for, um, you know, just a number of different issues that were going on over there, whether or not their chemical agents had been used by Assad or by others on the people who are living in Syria. That's like an open debate. And I really want to have an episode of Power Report on with people who are very much removed from this conversation so there are no stakes in the game so I can kind of like have a clear approach to it. But for the purposes of this, we don't need to get too much into that world news-like story for here. This is more about, again, national politics and strategy
1: for the left in the Malays era. So, th- this discourse around
0: Syria and Jimmy and Anna, or whatever, quickly devolved into an incident where Jimmy made sexually inappropriate comments over Anna's outfit uh, during this one instance in the middle of the office at TYT um, in front of Anna's. Uh, students from a class that Anna was teaching at the time, they'd come in to do like a, um, you know, like I guess a on the job shadowing of what Anna was doing at TYT and Jimmy happened to be there and make that remark and I'm saying this because like Uh, Anna has admitted that this happened. Jimmy has admitted this happening. There's slightly different versions of this, but they've both admitted that this has happened. Um, I was not personally there to witness this incident. There was a lot of times at TYT where I was working remotely because I was still um, in college at the time, separately from the offices. But I've seen Jimmy make inappropriate comments on others' clothing, including one time when he made a comment on me wearing shorts in California in the summer randomly one time. But... Nevertheless, behind Jimmy's resentment of all of this and all this really kind of gross stuff coming up was his feeling of betrayal from media figures who didn't join or openly, or people who openly criticized his force-the-vote death march from earlier this year, who for folks who don't know or unfortunately need remembering or reminding, uh, Jimmy Dore and a number of others proposed a strategy where you force a vote by uh the democrats in the house on nancy pelosi Uh, you you withhold your vote on uh voting for a speaker of the house nancy pelosi to be the speaker of the house unless she holds a floor vote on medicare for all and even though it's destined to fail and some of the forced to vote people realize this you would get people on record for supporting it or not and then you could mount a grassroots offensive against those um democrats Never mind that we already knew which Democrats are in favor of Medicare for all and aren't in favor of Medicare for all, let alone that this kind of grassroots support wouldn't be led by Jimmy Dore necessarily or these YouTube commentators or Patreon commentators and podcasters, as it were. Um, Let alone these people were just kind of jumping in and leading with a really bad strategy that would have spent a lot of the squad's political capital, let's say. Um, at a point where it really did not make a difference before the Georgia runoff, when the Democrats had to appear like a strong party while the Republicans were in shambles because they were busy, you know, storming the Capitol, essentially, or getting ready to storm the Capitol, at least before the Georgia runoff. And this whole force the vote thing was stuff that TYT really, really, sorry, or Jimmy Dore really, really felt that um, because people weren't paying attention to it, the people who weren't paying attention to it didn't really have any interest in uh, getting Medicare for all for people. That they were only interested in, um, they weren't truly interested in getting Medicare for all for people. They were paid shills. They had sold out to the Democratic Party because Jimmy Dore has a very my way or the highway approach that goes back to uh, deep-seated mental health issues that he very much has. That people around him are very much aware of. Um, people who work with him are very much aware of, and things that he has frankly been vocal about in other public forums so it's not too low blow of a me to say this but dude has mental issues and i'm going to be going over a couple of these different things as well as a little bit of us setting the record straight here because at this point you have pundits with egos out there um many of which i formerly used to work for and work with and some of the record needs to be set straight here and so in response to this, like really gross back and forth, this incident with uh, Jimmy responding to um, Anna's dress and essentially sexually harassing her in the workplace uh, was resurfaced. TYT had to respond forcefully in a video to Jimmy Dore because Jimmy had also been slandering TYT for months and saying a number of these different things.
3: And so I sent him that DM because the harassment has continued. It's not sexual
2: harassment. It's been constant harassment online, that wouldn't go away, doesn't matter if I ignore him, which some of my friends, my leftist friends have told me, just ignore him, it'll go away. Just ignore him, ignore him, kept going and going and going, directing trolls at me nonstop. And finally, I couldn't take it anymore. So I sent him that message saying, you remember what you did to me. Yeah. And I, I can't stand that he positions himself as this moral fighter for progressive values when he and I both know the kind of behavior he engaged in when he was working here. So I, I wanted to give you that context.
3: So so by the way, why didn't Anna tell me? Uh, because I would have fired him and no good deed goes unpunished. So she didn't tell me he kept uh, working here.
0: And yeah, in that video at one point, Jenks says the specific incident between Anna and Jimmy he hadn't heard of. Otherwise he would have acted sooner against having Jimmy on the network period which could possibly be true. I'm not going to say that, oh, Jenk knew about this specific incident beforehand. But I will mention that Jenk had an idea of the kind of issues that Jimmy Dore would face to other people that he was treating around him and the way he would approach politics and the way he would approach this as a host because hosting is inherently a responsibility that you have to an audience. And these issues have been brought up to him as early as June 2018, which is a call that I had with Jenk to talk about these things as much. Because we were talking about, you know, my production role and what I would be doing um, on the production side of things. And I mentioned on that call with him that I didn't mind working with John and Anna, where both hosts have um, an intellectual curiosity and learning was a two-way street. I felt that my working relationship with them was like I was learning something new, I was growing in my professional career um they're generally like kind people like what you see is what you get on here same thing with why i felt with hassan piker i think hassan and i have had um our internal less public arguments and our external more public disagreements but um hassan and i are still tight and I, I think that's very like well aware and at tyt we're allowed to have disagreements with each other and still be tight more or less right but i was telling Jenk at the time on that call that Jimmy is a bit of a different situation, right? Like, he doesn't have that same intellectual curiosity. He has this bull in the china shop hosting style where f- details and facts are frequently disregarded, so he can make one of his canned, uh, everyman jag off comedian talking points. N- nevertheless, the show had to be staffed. I drew the shortest straw and I had to work on Aggressive Progressives and Jimmy Dore's show on YouTube Live Linear at the time um, for the live linear TV platforms that TYT is on. For most people, that really does not matter all that much, but it just means that you can sometimes watch TYT on different TV platforms.
1: Um, but even after I brought up my concerns, Jenk decided for whatever reason
0: that allowing to give Jimmy his platform allowing him to do this show where he would shout over people who disagreed with him he would (laughs) give overly preferential credit to people who name-dropped him on podcasts Um, and these would be politicians mind you that Cenk decided for whatever reason I guess that that would be somehow beneficial for the company or for the progressive movement as a whole clearly he was wrong on that i'm not sure why he thought that at the time but there's a a little bit more reconciliation that i think needs to happen for the fact that there was so much faith put in folks like dave rubin uh like Jimmy Dore, like uh the Cheridans, the uh tracys of the world that folks were saying things about that for whatever reason there was no action taken on um or the people who were closest to the matter weren't trusted. I think it's a, it's a learning moment for the structure of companies, I would say. But working with Jimmy on Aggressive Progressives was <laughs> something that was a definitely a teachable, like hard moment for me as a producer, I guess, I would say. Um, me and the other people on the production team, I'll protect the names of the innocent souls, I guess, would propose articles and try to pitch them in different directions in ways he would like them. But ultimately, he would just take a newsreader role. He would read the quotes verbatim as opposed to picking parts of the articles he would like as those who was... as though he was too busy to research for the own show that he was hosting, supposedly informing people and providing humorous commentary on. At some points, I would have to, like, train him <laughs> to understand big picture issues. I remember a specific instance where we were supposed to do a story where... um. A kid didn't have enough money for, um, or I think it was a teacher who didn't have enough money for school supplies, and so they put on a GoFundMe, and the kids uh, raised enough money for the teacher to buy school supplies for the students and for the classroom in general. And Jimmy seemed ready to go on as though it was like a good story in general, like this is a good moment where like people can get together on a grassroots level and organize, and I was like, no, this is a systemic failure. As a producer, I had to tell him that the fact that you have to get to a GoFundMe to have these schools have supplies for their students, instead of the fact that you have millionaires and billionaires who oftentimes benefited from these schools or their parents benefited from these schools, and they're not paying their fair share back, and so money's not going to these schools, and so they have to... Take money from people who are already struggling going by, kids having to beg their parents for additional money that they're already spending to go to these schools is actually a systemic issue and not something to celebrate. These are things I'd sort of have to like handhold Jimmy Dore towards so that he could pretend to be a leftist and then go on to Tucker Carlson's show. But like more on that later because that's a total hypocrisy because he will say that, oh, anyone who criticizes him for talking to people on the right aren't real leftists because you should be able to convince people on the right. and That's absolutely true. But There's something about being a leftist that's been far too obscured recently which is the ability to understand good and bad faith and that's something that uh especially covering ben shapiro and covering a lot of the folks on the new right the so-called intellectual dark web i've tried to make very clear and make very um pointed attention to the fact that people who are bad faith actors cannot necessarily be trusted the same way good faith actors can be trusted in so you can't put the same amount of effort into convincing them of something they don't want to be convinced of because they already have an
1: agenda That is something for a lot of people in this crowd. It is difficult for them to understand. But again, back to Jimmy. You understand that certain jokes a
0: comedian makes don't land well, and I, I totally understand that. I have friends who are comedians, and sometimes they say jokes that like, you know, it strikes the wrong chord, it's just not the great thing. And You need to have a space for comedians to feel like they can make those jokes and not feel like their careers are over because they made those flubs. They can apologize in the moment, they can realize what mistakes they made, and they can learn from them. But when you're a host and you're landing jokes on and off air at the crew's expense, at the host ex- at, um, people who are working for you's expense, um,
1: that's not acceptable. And these are things that Jimmy would do quite often. I'd see him do quite often. People, crew members, would be upset crying sometimes because of the
0: stuff Jimmy needlessly said as what were him were jokes, but it's just like schoolyard bullying that is unnecessarily to do in a workplace context. And this is not just like, oh, this is what he's like behind the scenes. This is just his dirt. This is what goes to what he shows how he deals with dealing with people. Because when he starts yelling with people on force-to-vote panels, talking about supposed political strategy with people who are supposed to be on his side, not just people who are leftists, but people who are leftists and agreed with his boneheaded idea and his boneheaded strategy, when he's yelling and talking over them and can't even get... Um, his point across articulately, you're kind of getting idea in between the pundit you're seeing on air versus the person that we knew off-camera at TYT. His insecurities were absolutely obvious. His tone would sour towards Bernie Sanders when um, it became clear and clearer that Sanders had no interest in becoming part of Jimmy Dore's scream fest. Meanwhile, he was relatively fine. He was a busy senator, and we wanted him to come on TYT and other shows more, but... He would come on the shows maybe once every couple of months here or there and give an 11- or 12-minute interview where we'd be able to ask him some tough questions but some questions he wouldn't get in the mainstream media that would also kind of highlight his policy agenda and what he wanted to accomplish for people. But Jimmy Dore was just upset that he didn't get to talk to the the big man as far as Bernie goes. When Tulsi Gabbard name-dropped him on Joe Rogan, he would play that clip on the episode immediately after Tulsi Gabbard went on Joe Rogan and started name-dropping Jimmy Dore. The next episode of Aggressive Progressives, he would just play that clip multiple times just out of context. He's like, by the way, Tulsi Gabbard likes me and name-dropped me on a really big podcast. Where I have a really
1: big audience. Where, he, where the podcast has a really big audience. So now I'll have a really big audience. More than three times in a row. Like at least five. Um, folks know about the Francesca Fiorentini thing where...
0: Um, Jimmy Dore, while on a vacation, still found the time to send angry, drunkenly-sounded messages that were really, really tense and unnecessary and fairly, yeah, just like have some sexist undertones. Because There's a way he will snap towards, and again, there's someone who worked with him, there's a way he will snap towards women and treat them a certain way, but when men stand up to him, he, he stands back. He actually jumps back sometimes, actually. I have, I have personal experience with that. But yeah, he, he sent these unhinged messages, sent all these weird accusations towards Francesca about her being a paid chill, paid chill or whatever, and his followers get just as belligerent as he is. This is all relevant to the force the vote thing, but I've just got a lot of record straightening to set, so we'll move on and we'll move forward here. These are all behaviors that those of us who worked around him would see as far back as 2017 that the larger public is becoming privy to now because they're connecting the dots. But now he's becoming platformed by broader portions of the left, your Glenn Greenwald's The World, et
1: as well as media figures like Tucker Carlson and faux populists on the right. These are stepping stones that Jenk and the Young Turks, and by proxy me, helped laid for him. And I don't feel great about that. And I hope Cenk doesn't feel great about that either. Because if you fast forward to today, and on Power Report and on other shows, earlier this year, I did one of the more uncomfortable interviews
0: I did, not because um. I didn't like doing the interview with um, Jordan Ewell, who was a guest earlier on the show, and then Rob Rousseau on the Insurgents, talking about force to vote. But because like I know Jimmy Dore, and I didn't want to like make this a personal tit for tat thing with him, because there are certain points um, with my relationship with Jimmy Dore where we're like at least having a passable work relationship and riffing a little bit and getting along as people. Um, and so I didn't want to make this this dirty ass like public thing. I'm not like
1: this kind of person. But I will get that way. I have a limit. Everyone has their limit. I've reiterated how the
0: exact timing and strategy behind the force to vote crowd and the force to vote message was strategically bad. But that I agree, I personally, Dan from the internet, I personally agree that the sentiment of continually applying pressure to leftists in Congress is a good thing. And we should continuously... Get them to fight as hard as possible. But for Jimmy Dore, anyone who disagrees with his my way or the highway approach to politics, even people who are on his side politically, who agree with him on things involving um, police violence, um, involving the overall idea of Medicare for all, whether or not it's just a tragedy to get there, the idea of Medicare for all, these are people who agree with him. On a number of different issues, supposedly, he's a so-called progressive on, but let's check back in four years when the conservative checks keep rolling in. He calls these people sellouts. Something that the left is very privy to, though, because the left builds so much of a message on money and politics. This is something that Jenk Yuger very much... Uh, pushed forward in his discourse and through tyt has become a leftist part of discourse that people have then decided to um build upon and apply with a more thorough marxist discourse and adjust that to um markets and businesses and capitalism and the relationship between that and oligopoly and the tight relationship between business and politics some would call it power if you will and they extend this money and politics approach to a further leftist approach. But the idea of calling someone to sell out is a very, very strong thing to say on the left. Say they've sold out their principles, but you better have evidence. These people don't have evidence. It's a phrase they throw around so often, it loses meaning. It's sort of like how I saw a lot of men at TYT learn
1: the phrase gaslighting and then overuse the phrase, Jimmy Dore especially, Because they learned that it was about... (sighs) They learned the history of it from the film Gaslight, and then they learned about its
0: um, approach and use in abusive relationships. When you're telling someone that something isn't real, that they're not believing something that they're actually seeing, to not believe their lying eyes, and you apply that to a political sense. They they, they learned
1: that, and they thought that was really catchy, and now they overuse these phrases... But when you don't have that approach, you can't apply
0: a nuanced perspective to say, "Hey, I disagree with this person's strategy, but overall, they're on my side. Maybe we can find some middle ground." No, by saying they're immediately a sellout because they disagree with you, that your strategy is the only way, it, it, it lacks a lot of power on you, Jimmy Dore. Lacks a lot of power on anyone to say they know um better than the activists or they know where the activists should be going. It takes a lot of honestly idiocy and ignorance. To say that a movement involving you on YouTube
1: popping off, yelling over women who are trying to give you the benefit of the doubt, you dumbass,
0: to say that that's activism as opposed to nurses unions and actual congresspeople like Pramila Jayapal trying to find ways to get Medicare for all happen and a fast track to do it as soon as possible by paving out uh, legislation to get that to happen by saying those people are solid for doing the actual work and that you're
1: doing the work, by saving up for your mansion in Studio City? Get out of here with that griffness. And people, you got, people just got to be just, use your brains. The people around him have been saying this
0: for the longest. And even people in these spaces were not listening. Kyle Kalinske can catch the smoke too. Kyle Kalinske was super naive and learned the air of his waves when he jumped into this because Jimmy Dore was calling Kyle Kalinske out. You gotta just ignore it. Dude, just ignore it. And Kyle Kalinske tried to have a measure approach by saying, Listen, the only thing I agree with TYT here is the fact that uh, Jimmy's comments were gross. But the serious stuff, I'm with Jimmy and his crew. Whatever, I'm going to find my own approach here and have that on PowerPoint. but like, whatever.
1: Kyle tried to defend Jimmy Dore and just said that Jimmy's just too nuclear and needs to cool it a little bit. And that was overly fair. And Jimmy still went nuclear again against him. Because the only thing
0: Kyle was right about in that entire approach, that entire, like, whole video where he had to try to, in good faith, explain to himself to someone who... A, doesn't act in good faith. Jimmy Dore does not act in good faith. And the people around you have been telling Kyle that for a while, but they don't listen. Kyle doesn't listen because he thinks that because he's a fierce independent and fiercely in his bubble for whatever reason, that he's a vanguard and he knows what to say here. And I agree with Kyle on a lot of things here, but he's got to listen to the people who know things when they know things at some points, right? People have been warning him about Jimmy and his behavior. And Kyle was right about only one thing, and only one of those warnings, that Jimmy only has two modes, normal and nuclear. And he's continuing to use his rage back and forth against anyone who doesn't show unequivocal support to him and his idiocy and his fragile ego as a sellout, as not down with the cause,
1: as not as down with the cause as this comedian who barely marches, barely protests, doesn't care enough about the people watching his shows to thoroughly go through the articles he's telling through from my own viewing of what I was seeing from when I was producing the show with him. It's ridiculous, and yet people will go online and tell me,
0: people who have never met Jimmy Dore, will tell me, someone who has worked with Jimmy Dore, that I am the wrong one, that I am the sellout, that I'm the one who uh, doesn't want Medicare for All, that I'm getting a large amount of money to go against this policy that I would benefit very nicely from. I'm 25. I am months away from being on my own with health insurance. I'd very much benefit from Medicare for All. All right? So these people don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Jimmy Dore continued recently attacking one of my good friends, former PowerPort guest Emma
1: Vigland, making these absolutely irrelevant digs on her family and just going into personally low levels of discourse here that
0: are completely unnecessary.
4: Emma Viglin says this, she goes, Uh, there's there's no, I know, (laughs) when you, when you grow up rich in a cul-de-sac, you find, you you find pretty words to shit on people who are actually fighting for things. When you grow up super rich in a cul-de-sac and your parents are corporate lawyers, shit libs, and you've had every advantage handed to you your whole fucking life, you're never, when did she ever fight for anything? Never. Again, people who are sitting at home on their fucking millionaire asses, never doing fucking anything. Anything. Anna experience sitting in her $24 million studio telling, wagging her finger at other people who are actually out there pressuring politicians.
0: Just to address two points right there, unnecessarily. Jimmy's talking about people who are getting a silver spoon handed to him when Jimmy Dore apparently worked for his dad's bricklaying company before running off to LA to become a comedian. So if you're working for your parents, just don't throw stones in glass houses, all right? It's perfectly fine to work for your parents. A lot of working class people work for their parents, and like, they're still very working class. That's just like a common story because a lot of times it's just like, hard to get hired unless you know someone. But don't be talking about someone who is uh, proudly working in a $24 million studio when you worked in that same $24 million studio, which, by the way, was not a $24 million studio. My job would have been so much easier if it were a $5 million studio. You don't understand how money works, dude. Just, like, sit your ass down. <laughs> but, like, Jimmy Dore sat in that same studio, same desk, same cameras, and is now talking about, oh, because he sits in a different studio in his garage at his multimillion-dollar house, that he's now somewhat of a movement builder. The, the hubris of this asshole.
4: Understanding of how goals are achieved historically because these folks are being misled by red brown alliance media figures. Sapping them of energy and cash. Progress. So what she's doing is undermining activists in the middle of a, a big 50 different cities for Medicare for all. Hey, why don't you ask to speak? at that and go out and give your opinion why don't you go out there and interview some of those people and tell them about the red-brown alliance that you're so worried about that you have no fucking idea what you're talking about and by the way these are the kind of people like to quote Marx as if they're smart because they went to good colleges that got paid for by their corporate lawyer parents but if they ever got within five feet of a worker they'd get punched in the fucking face Emma Viglin never got anywhere near a fucking worker they tell her to get the fuck out of here and go back to your cul-de-sac and your corporate lawyer parents and tell me how good Elizabeth Warren is as she calls Bernie a sexist.
0: Again, a lot of points there and I Emma Vigeland can do a perfectly fine job of defending herself, but the idea that Jimmy Dore went to like a private high school, like a private middle school or whatever, for like Catholics or whatever, right? And has like jokes about like allegedly being sexually harassed at this like private Catholic school. So if he's talking, this private Catholic school cost a pretty penny to go to. It wasn't a public school, right? This cost money to go to. Your parents had the money to do that. Your cop dad had the money to put you into a private school, right? So stop talking about people's elitism, Jimmy Dore, when this is the world you come from. It's this performative hypocrisy that I'm sick of seeing, but it also kind of gets to the point of like, why are we here? Like, what is this point? Uh, w- we're so close to that's like why are we here point but he continues to go further down this rabbit hole to points that are just like truly kind of gross and he continues to invoke like just the most gross parts of his rhetoric here
4: Anna says Michael Brooks B- Brooks pushed me to the left strategically Again, what's your strategy then? Quit hiding behind your fucking friend Every time someone calls you out for being a shit liberal, she invokes the name of her fucking friend. You think Michael Brooks would have been against against people fucking in the streets for Medicare for all, you knucklehead? How dumb are you? Oh, well, that's not dumb. She's cynical, sarcastic, narcissistic, megalomaniac, fucking liar. Michael Brooks pushed me left. Why did you need to be pushed left? What the fuck? I thought you were the host of the Young Turks. Keep waiting. Now is not the time. Will you tell them to go fuck off and just go get jobs at MSNBC? Just do it already. Go look at their playlist. It's all Trump and hating Republicans. They're just MSNBC anyway. That's all their playlist is. And you're, and she's a shit lib who gets called out and then she hides behind her fucking friend. Get the fuck out of here.
0: Again, I gave you a story where I had to come correct on Jimmy Dore for his lack of uh, leftist analysis. And again, I've had to come to Jimmy Dore for the fact that he has like no analysis whatsoever. He is just has made a comedic sort of behavior and a platform built off of TYT. Of a comedian who doesn't really pay much attention to the news is sort of just like
1: passively angrily yelling at what's going on the news and the premise is that you're supposed to like agree hopefully but getting to the point of like Michael Brooks who died and was very much against a lot of what
0: Jimmy Dore was for was kind of a point that was a little too far another point that was a little too far was Jenks response to all this and there's Johnson for the video saying that Michael Brooks's co-host on Jacobin was Anna Kasparian. He asked her to co-host because he completely trusted her judgment and analysis. Michael despised Jimmy Dore and thought he was a dum-dum. And the fucking grifter has a nerve to pretend that Michael would have supported him over Anna. <sighs> it's a fine point to make, honestly. But, Jenk, there's a reckoning, as I'm saying here, that needs to be made with who was platformed and who wasn't. Because despite the Rubens and the Doors and the Tracys of the world... There were opportunities to platform many more positive voices that Jenk chose not to take. Especially while I was producing there. And this is just, again me talk is myself there. There's Michael Brooks who definitely did a really good job of like exposing Anna to more things that pushed her left, because I was able to see a transformation of Anna that I think um is available in video evidence. Um, to her having perspectives that are closer to following leftist discourse. Is she like a democratic socialist, the prime example of that, I think that's open for debate. Um, And is she, like, all the way far-left hard communist? Obviously not, okay? So that's a totally different matter there. But I was also, like, as a producer, trying to expose other people at TYT to folks like Richard Wolff, folks like Michael Brooks, um, and to use TYT's platform to give these folks a bigger bigger platform and a different platform to get people who are viewers of TYT along the chain of, you know, I guess radicalization, if you will, to get them to expand the money and politics analysis to a broader class workers analysis. But when Anna and I lobbied to have Michael Brooks appear on the main show, which would have helped give him a larger platform, broaden his audience, and given that audience, TYT's audience, an incredibly cogent leftist political analysis that thought about world Politics and discourse and the future and really smart strategy all of these things at once jenk shot it down I I don't have answers for why he did this but very much. This is too little too late not only because Michael Brooks passed already, but because
1: Jimmy has this platform and a lot of others have this platform because Honestly, Jenk took too long to realize which people were not the ones to be trusted. Because he wasn't listening to the people around him. Jimmy Dore, <clears throat> much like Donald Trump, chooses to hack the discourse with charged
0: emotions, rage, and rhetoric for his own gain, as opposed to directing that anger towards tactics that actually work. He's a comedian. Jimmy Dore is a comedian and a comedian only. He's not actually a political actor, but his viewers think his work, his raging, his like all this stuff is activism. These like two or three, maybe two dozen, three dozen people at random parts in the country shouting about why Nina Turner isn't campaigning for Medicare for all when she's in her district trying to win an election campaigning for Medicare for all. And hey, maybe if you're in her district supporting her, maybe she would have had a little bit of help doing it. But no, this forced the vote crowd were following people like Breonna Joy Gray who spoke about Nina Turner being just another Democratic like cog in the machine who wouldn't help with anything useful for the party's cause. At a time in which voter turnout during the Nina Turner election was very, very low, as Jordan Ewell talked about in the interview earlier, it's really suspect that we have people Who worked on the same campaign as bernie sanders as as and joy gray did with nina turner speaking in this way again for patreon dollars can we talk about nina turner
3: implications of her time in congress she's not been there yet
4: implications of what it would mean if she were in congress
3: well i think it would be great
4: what would be different
0: because in this scenario right we're talking about getting enough progressives one more isn't going to change anything. So how do you convince people to get mobilized behind a candidate like this
4: when one it's just one more, of, one more, oh. one more. One quarter of 1% of the House <laughs> representatives will be Nina Turner.
0: That percentage that Virgil Texas sort of slyly gave there is also the percentage of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It's also the percentage of which of Cory Bush being in Congress. And Cory Bush essentially single-handedly was able to turn around the Joe Biden administration and get an eviction moratorium extended so that people weren't allowed to be kicked out of their homes. Putting evictions on their records, making it harder for them for years and years and years to possibly get housing, adding to America's housing crisis. Cori Bush, the black woman who's experienced more strife in being unhoused than Jimmy Dore ever has or ever will, successfully pressured the Biden administration to do that. Meanwhile, Jimmy Dore is calling Cory Bush a sellout before she even gets elected.
4: I don't care if Cory Bush just got elected and fucking uh, Jamal squad. Bauman and the squad and it, they're, that they're there—they're there to fake you out. Progressives inside the Democratic Party are there to fuck you up and fake you out. They're not there to help you. So this idea that somehow now Cory Bush and Jamal Bowman is going to somehow add to the heft. Of the progressive caucus is just a pipe dream because you now you have six people or seven people who are kind of progressive inside the Democratic Party. What that does is gives a false signal to workers that the there's them the Democratic Party is an opposition party. It is not. They are there to give you the false impression that it is, and that's why AOC is at the party. That's why Cory Bush is now in the party. This, they are not taking over this fucking party. That is not happening. Those people are head fakes inside the Democratic Party. More power to Cori Bush. You're, it's, a, you're losing, you're, it's a fool's errand to send you into the Democratic Party. You are going to be squashed. Hey, the Democrats just got Cory Bush and uh, Jamal Bauman. We, get, we, we have expanded the squad so that now we have more progressives who will do exactly as Nancy Pelosi tells them.
0: Yeah. Jimmy's doing activism preventing people from getting evicted in mass numbers by convincing, people by, by convincing people that the ones who are actually stepping up to do the work instead of doing the fancy thing on the podcast with the nice cameras and shit. Clown, absolute ass clown, deserves no credible attention in media or in the space, but people will give it to them Because they're lazy media consumers and that gets to the end of this that's where I am on this super long ass diatribe here for those of us who host these shows we have to ask how are we helping yes politics is terrible yes this is a miserable enterprise where um, you're constantly seeing people who are supposed to be on your side and people who you know are your enemies doing the absolute worst things but what are we doing here as hosts right are we informing people? Are we engaging people? Are we activating people? Are we disempowering people? Are we disenfranchising people? Are we demotivating people? We're supposed to be in this business because we want people to be well-informed and ready to make a difference. We want people to be, have the tools they can to make a difference, to see what's going on, to be motivated to change things and to maybe get a fit idea how, or maybe know where to start at least, right? But if the media you're creating isn't informing people it isn't leading people in the right direction because you have no interest in even getting in the right direction to begin with and all it's doing is leading people into these cycles of reactionary drama these cycles of despair instead of broadening their horizons then you're losing the entire point of this venture get get away from the microphone turn off the camera
1: go outside you're losing the entire point of the venture You're doing a long-term disservice to society for a direct deposit at the end of the day.
0: The people who have figured out to monetize these cycles of despair and feed into people's ignorance for their own profit must be relentlessly called out for and not be allowed to speak for the left. And we'll continue to do forcefully so on future episodes of Power Report. Because folks like Jimmy Dore, the principal stopped caring a long time ago
4: people for going to work you wouldn't forgive me for mm-hmm. going to work for the kkk but why do we forgive people for going to work for fox news because that is the most dispi- that is like not okay that is so over the top and that's what i'm saying like there's no disqualification from polite society anymore okay so, hey, and i think we should shame people who need to make money from racist organizations like fox news and we're happy to have him in our studio now jimmy dorr thanks so much for coming on it's my pleasure it's my pleasure you know i just like to tell people uh, who get upset at me for when I do your show is like, well, you shouldn't be upset that I'm doing Tucker's show. You should be thankful that Tucker brings me on to bring my anti-war message and my free speech and defense of Julian Assange to half the country.
0: He's not even completing his goddamn sentences
1: for the things he supposedly stands for. I think I've said enough on this, but I'm going to let Michael Brooks have the last word on Jimmy Dore. Because he was
0: abundantly clear about this.
3: Dude, if you want to do politics, you got to fucking understand the issues. It's not all just emotions and fantasy life. Or, if you want to do emotions and fantasy life, then own it and just do critique, and that's great. But don't call people who actually care about the process and bother to do some fucking research dummies because they look at things a little bit structurally. It's an easy hustle. It's an easy market. It's an easy game. But... It's not contributing to anything. It's not going to help us win. And to me, it seems like, if anything, at this point, this is helping Trump. If we have to fight neoliberals, we have to fight Trump, we have to fight establishment Democrats, we have to deal with the corporate hegemony, we have to deal with ideological conformity of a global elite... Do we really need to spend our time on YouTube just giving people dumb emotional releases, or actually help them think about how they actually get power? And I know that that was spoken like a true fucking corporate sellout. Get the fuck out of here, man! Do some research. Get serious.
0: Find Power Report on Twitter at PowerReportWRld on Instagram at PowerReportWorld. All the links are also at the website at powerport.world. And there's more of that where this came from.